0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick brings a Christmas message entitled, Do You See What I See? And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. And a very Merry Christmas to each and every one of you this morning. The uh, credit for the outline for this message this morning goes to a pastor, Willie Rice. A few years ago, Carol and I were out of town for Christmas, and we went to a church, and the pastor spoke on this theme, and I thought, boy, this is really good. If I ever get the opportunity to speak for a Christmas message, this is the outline that I want to use, and what a privilege and a joy it is to be bringing a Christmas message. Uh, Christmas and Easter have to be the two most joyful times of the year for Christians. Christmas is the The time when we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And Easter, of course, is the time when we celebrate his resurrection. So my thanks for Willie Rice to uh, the outline for this. And the title of the sermon is called, Do You See What I See? Do you see what I see? Now, isn't it interesting how some people will see one thing when someone else will see something completely different when they're looking at the very same thing? Why do we see what we see and do you see what I see. A case in point is an example. I may walk into somebody's kitchen and see on the stove a kettle with boiling water and I may ask the question, well, why is the water boiling? And the person may give me an answer, something like, boiling will occur when the equilibrium vapor pressure at the temperature of the liquid is equal to the total pressure of the system and heat is being provided either externally or by the sensible heat of the liquid itself. The gas phase in contact with the liquid can be comprised of pure vapor. It gets better. In which case, the total pressure is essentially equal to the equilibrium vapor pressure, or it can be comprised of a mixture of vapor and air, in which case the total pressure is essentially equal to the sum of the equilibrium vapor pressure of the boiling substance plus the partial pressure of the air. I did not make this up. I could not make this up. I could barely read it to you. I actually found this on a website website dedicated to physics and in particular physics students. So if you walk into a um, physics professor's kitchen and ask him why the water is boiling, you <laughs> may get this answer. But walk into somebody else's kitchen and ask them, why is the water boiling? And they may simply say to you, the water's boiling because I'm thirsty and I want to make a cup of tea. I like that answer a lot better. It's The exact same picture, the exact same image, but two people are seeing it completely different. Well, let's read the story of the account of the wise men found in Matthew chapter 2, and let's see what the Magi saw. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route." I want to start off this morning dispelling some of the myths and perhaps some of the traditions that have come about regarding the wise men in our pop culture and in uh, christmas pageants throughout the the north american countryside well firstly the wise men did not find jesus in a manger they did not find him as a baby and we can see the evidence as we just read in chapter 2 of matthew where they found jesus in a house already So it was sometime after the shepherds found Jesus that the wise men appeared on the scene. And We don't know exactly how many there are. We know that there was more than one because they were called wise men and not a wise man. But we don't know how many, but tradition often has three, one for each of the three gifts. But in reality we don't know the total number that came. And they were probably not kings themselves. This is a myth that's somewhat perpetuated in some songs and in perhaps some other paintings or traditions that you see. And there are some prophecies in the Bible that speak of kings coming to God, to Jesus, to the Christ, to bow down and worship and present him with gifts. But we're not told specifically that these wise men were the answer to that prophecy. And in fact, the term magi is where we get the word magic from. You see, magi or wise men at that time did Delve into magic, they interpreted dreams, and they were very much into astrology, which is understandable. How the star came into play in this uh, in this picture, and we don't know exactly where they came from. Now, scholars have been able to uh, give some pretty good suppositions as to where the wise men could have come from. Uh, some say as far away as what is modern-day India some from a little closer, but we do know the wise men came from the east. There's more that we don't know about the Magi than what we do know. And this morning I want us to concentrate on what do we see, and do you see what they saw, or do you see something different? Well, let's start with a question. Why are some people moved to worship, and some people seeing the same thing are moved to boredom? a hard question to find an answer to, but I believe at least in part, it starts with how we see ourselves. There was an author who lived in the 20th century, Aeneas Neen, and she has a quote that's attributed to her that says, we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. I'll say that again. We don't see things as they are, but we see things as we are. Interesting thought. If you change that quote slightly, you can say, we don't see people as they are, but rather we see people as we are. Now it's possible that Herod, who was ruthless in wanting to hold on to his power, that he had seen Jesus in the same light that he saw himself. In other words, Herod saw Christ, <coughs> excuse me, Herod saw Christ as someone who would want to overthrow himself, that is Herod, as the current king, and that Jesus would do anything to accomplish that, because after all, that's what Herod would do himself. I'm reading a lot between the lines here, but it makes sense when you wonder, why was Herod so threatened by Jesus Christ? Herod saw Jesus Christ, the child, in the same way that a number of people saw Jesus Christ, the adult, an earthly king, who came to overthrow a government. Herod saw Jesus as someone wanting to overthrow himself, and in Jesus' adult life, many people saw Jesus as the one who would come and overthrow the Roman oppressors who were over Israel at that time. And Herod saw that as a threat, and he needed to, needed to get rid of that threat, and no cost was too great to Herod. Herod was also known for having killed some of his own children in order to protect His power, And if he was willing to kill some of his own children, having somebody else's child wouldn't seem like much of a stretch for Herod. Why is it that some people are moved to worship during a song, a message, a prayer, or a reading of scripture, and others are moved to boredom? Here we are back at that question again. They see the same thing, that is a person standing, singing to them, or reading words from the Bible, or perhaps giving a message. They see the same things, that is, reading the Bible, opening God's Word. Some are moved to worship, and some are moved just the opposite, to boredom. How do you see Jesus Christ? Do you see him as you see yourself? Are you someone who sees themselves as being all they need in this world? You're only interested in what makes you happy, what makes you satisfied, even if it's only for the moment. You have people around you and those people you have are there to satisfy your needs. And once they no longer satisfy your needs, you simply move on to somebody else. If that's the case, then you will either see Jesus Christ just as someone like yourself who was looking to satisfy his needs or someone who was looking to push his goals on your life. Someone looking to impose his will on you. <clears throat> Or else you may even choose to disbelieve in Christ altogether, that he never existed. And that way you don't have to be accountable to him. So you can just go on continuing to satisfy your own needs. Or maybe, maybe you're someone who sees themselves as being here for more than just yourself. You see yourself as being put on this earth for a greater reason than yourself. If you're that person, then you can see Jesus Christ as someone who can fulfill the greater calling that you have in your life. You can see Jesus as God with us, Emmanuel. You can begin to see how Christ can give you something that you can't give yourself. That's eternal life. And he can give you a plan for your life that's far greater than any plan you can ever come up with on your own. You can even begin to worship Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone who sees themselves as being here for more than just themselves will choose Christ. There are lots of selfless, giving, loving people out there have no desire to choose Christ. People who live for the moment, giving as they may be, but without a view towards eternity. I encourage you to spend some time this Christmas season to honestly look inward to yourself, not only to see how you see Jesus, but why you see him as you do. Now, why could the wise men see Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews, worthy of being worshipped and being presented with costly gifts? Were they surprised to find the king of the Jews in a lowly house in a not-so-important town? Did they see Jesus as they saw themselves? I don't know the answer to these questions. We're not told why they came to worship Jesus. They simply told Herod they came to worship the one-born king of the Jews. I think, though, that they saw what they saw because they were looking, and that's such a huge key in a person's life. But in order for the wise men to be looking, God first had to make himself known to them. Otherwise, they would have not known what the star meant or why it was so special. But how does God make himself known? How did he make himself known to the wise men? How does he make himself known to us, to mankind? Well, one of the ways that God makes himself known is through his creation. Psalm 19 verse 1 reads the heavens declare the glory of God the skies proclaim the work of his hands the complexity and intricacy of us that is humans the earth that we live in the universe it's caused numerous scientists to come to the conclusion that all of this couldn't have just happened by accident it didn't just happen Something caused it to happen. In interviews that I've read with scientists from many different disciplines of scientists, of science, a lot of scientists have come to the conclusion that there must be an intelligent designer behind it all, and that intelligent designer is God. God reveals himself in his creation from the tiniest of particles to the grandeur of the universe, and the universe is grand indeed. It's estimated that there are three septillion stars in the universe. Three septillion. That's just a very rough estimate because, you see, we can't count all of the stars because we can't see all of the stars. Even with the most powerful telescope, we just can't see them all. And in fact, the magi, when they walked this earth, they probably would have only seen a few thousand stars on any given night when they looked up and just looked at a starlit night with their bare eyes but scientists estimated the number of stars in our galaxy and then they multiplied that by the estimated number of galaxies in the universe and they came up with a number three septillion give or take a few three of anything doesn't sound like much to me but three septilia, septillion is a number three with 24 zeros behind it and again 24, come on, it's two dozen. How big could that number be? Well, let's put it into perspective. Suppose we could count all of the stars. Suppose we could see them, and we started counting them, and we counted one star every second. One, two, three, four. Or if you're French, un, deux, trois, quatre. Or if you're Roman, I, 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 I V. Suppose we could see them. Suppose we could count them, and we started to, and we counted to 1 million stars. That would take us just over 11 days. That's doable. You need an army of volunteers to keep the count going, but 11 days, we could do that, count to a million stars. How about if we kept going and counted to 1 billion stars? To count to 1 billion stars, it would take 31.7 years. Well, let's keep going. Let's count to one trillion stars. If we counted to one trillion stars, counting one per second, it would take us, get this, 31,709.8 years to count to one trillion stars. And that's just a trillion. After a trillion comes a quadrillion, then a heptillion, then a sextillion. Then we get to one septillion, and we have to do it not once, not twice, but three times. Now that number's starting to blow my mind. But what's even more incredible? What's even more incredible than three septillion stars is that God calls them all by name. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He determines a number of stars and calls each of them by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Not only did God create the stars, he gave each of them a name. And when Christ was born, a new star was born with him, a star for the wise men to recognize, Three and one stars now. The question today is, do you see what they saw? Do you see God all around you in creation? Do you see the butterfly that floats in the air? Do you see the beauty of birth? Do you see the power of a thunderstorm? Do you see the intricacy of bacterial phlegium? If you don't know what that is, look that up on the internet. Absolutely fascinating what God created. And of course, the grandeur of the universe that started the wise men on their journey. Well, a second way that God makes himself known to us is through those around us. Not only does God make himself known to creation, but also those people who come into contact with us, or perhaps people we've never even met. If you look at the history of the early church, you'll see how the apostles had a huge impact on the early church, how it spread, how it grew. Apostles like Peter and others had a huge impact on taking that gospel message to their Jewish compatriots among them. Paul, also known as the apostle to the Gentiles, made several mission trips between Israel and Rome, spreading that gospel message of Jesus Christ. Who would have been the people in the lives of the Magi who would have introduced them to God, and the prophecies that caused them to follow a star to Jerusalem and eventually Jesus? The Bible doesn't say specifically who, but we can look back to history and perhaps see the start of the journey before the Magi were even born. Both Esther and Daniel, who lived about six centuries before the wise men, lived in the part of the world that many scholars believe the Magi could have emanated from. Daniel, who was taken captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, was able to greatly influence both the kings of of Babylon and later on in Persia. Esther, who was part of a group of Israelites taken captive at a time when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made a second trip to uh, To Israel and took a number of Israelites captives a second time. Now both her and her cousin Mordecai came to great prominence under Xerxes, the ruler of Persia at that time. It's possible that their influence and the influence of other Jews in that area put together the base that the Magi drew from later on when they were born. These territories that Babylon had, that Persia had at that time. They stretched right from the northwest of Israel to the north, to the northeast, and even right across to the east of Israel. So it's very possible that these early Jewish people started a knowledge base that the Magi drew from centuries later. Who's influenced your life on your way to becoming a Christian or while you are a Christian? Who planted the seeds, who watered the seeds that God brought to fruition? We often remember a few prominent people in our life who played an important role in us becoming a Christian, who or who discipled us when we became a Christian. But there are many, many more people who planted seeds in our lives. Some of those seeds were so small we didn't even know they were planted, but yet each one of those seeds has the potential to germinate and to grow. Some of those seeds were even planted before we were born. This pastor that I heard speak, Willie Rice, he planted a seed in me. Someone planted a seed in him. Who planted that seed before? I I don't know. But our horticultural roots can eventually be traced back to God. And I think that's where all the credit eventually deserves to go to. Well, a third way that God makes himself known to us is through his word. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, it doesn't matter who the seed planters would have been in the lives of the wise men if the right seeds were not planted. God's word, that is the Torah, and the historical accounts of people like Esther and Daniel and others, and the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, they all played a part in forming that knowledge base those seeds that the wise men could have drawn from. All of these became the seed catalog from which eventually the Magi would recognize the significance of the star that appeared to them when God came to this earth as one of us, but yet still fully God. We don't have time to go into the prophecies of Baal in Numbers 24 and the connection With Genesis chapter 49 and Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. I don't know exactly what the wise men saw when they saw what they called a star. The Bible gives no account with the information the wise men actually had, but without God's Word they would never have been able to eventually make that connection to Jesus Christ. The knowledge base that made its way to the part of the world where the Magi were was at the right place at the right time for the right people who were looking for the right thing. They would not have known the significance of the star, or why should they follow it if all of this was not in place? Now, one piece of information that we can deduce that the wise men didn't have or didn't understand was the prophecy of where the king of the Jews was to be born. That's found in Micah. Chapter five, verse two, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Either the wise men never had that information or they never made that connection. Perhaps God withheld them from it, withheld that information from them, so they would have to pass through Jerusalem to make inquiries. There's more that we don't know about the wise men than we do know. But that's okay. Bruce Royal, some time ago in a message, made the comment that God doesn't tell us everything, but he does tell us what we need to know. And what they knew was to go looking for the one who was to be born King of the Jews. And I believe God's holy word played a process in that. They could see what they saw because their eyes were open. What do you see when you read God's Word? Are you like me, and do you see something different every time you reread it? Do you see what you need to see for the moment when you read God's Word? When you read God's Word, do you remember something that you read that just the day before, if somebody asked you, you couldn't even remember having read it, but on the day you need it, it's there for you. God plants those seeds. He plants that Word within our hearts, within our lives, and it's there for us to make use of. No other book I've ever come across has the ability to do that. And perhaps that's why Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, wrote, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, there's also a fourth way that God makes himself known to us, and he makes himself known to us in our hearts. This is more abstract than the first three, but it's every bit as important, and I might even argue it's the most important way that God makes himself known to us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 reads, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We can talk about the evidence of God through creation. We can discuss the historical accounts of different people in the Bible. We can discuss the authenticity of the Bible itself. But none of that would have meant anything to the wise men if they were not open to God's leading. They saw the star with their eyes, but it was with their hearts that God led them across Israel to find the king of the Jews, That they were to worship and they weren't just taking a day trip across a valley to go looking for Jesus Christ they would have had to plan this journey it would have taken months months for them to travel but they went they went because they were called the greatest evidence for God being real is that he changes lives And the most compelling evidence that God does this is to look at the lives of the 12 disciples that were closest to him. Those 12 men who were with Jesus from the start and followed him all around Israel, listening to him talk, listening to him interact with people, seeing the miracles that he performed. They spent close to three years with the Son of God. Nobody else was closer to him at that time. They didn't fully comprehend who Jesus was until after his resurrection, but none were closer than they. But how is that, how is that proof that God is real? I mean, all throughout history, there have been leaders and people who had followers who followed them with great devotion, who even followed them to their deaths. How is Christ any different? The difference is that if Jesus had just died on the cross and that was the end of it, then he would have been just like any other one of those leaders that have been throughout history. He would have been a lie, a myth, a fabrication. But because of the resurrection, his disciples knew the difference. If that resurrection hadn't occurred, The disciples would have probably disbanded and just gone away disheartened. Or maybe some of them would have tried to keep the message of Christ's love and how to live a good life alive. Or maybe one or two of them may have tried to rise up and take over the leadership, the vacuum that would have been left there. But because of the resurrection and because Jesus showed himself not just to the remaining 11 disciples, but hundreds of people between the time of his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, because of that evidence, Christ is who he said he was. We have that recorded evidence that Christ is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, who, that the Magi came to worship, the bridegroom of us, his church. The church has lasted for over 2,000 years, and it has survived some of the most spirited and concentrated efforts to push it aside, to push it under, to kill it. But yet the church still remains. 500 plus witnesses, that's how many people Christ showed himself to after his resurrection. That's a lot of witnesses to be out there at the time when the apostles were walking, spreading the gospel, of Jesus Christ throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea, throughout the known world at that time. And many many of those people were still alive, it's recorded in the Bible. So if what the apostles apostles were spreading was a lie or a fabrication, the witnesses would have bore them out. But instead, the witnesses bore to the truth of who Jesus Christ was and is. Men like the apostles would not have taken the message to the Jews and the Gentiles throughout the known world if Jesus was just a myth or a fraud. The cost was just too great to them. Just read the list of what Paul put down and what the cost it was to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's found in Second Corinthians chapter 11. He paid a high price if he was just following a fraud. There was no fame, no power, no fortune, no prestige that came to any of those men. In fact, the Bible records and other historical documents at that time record the horrendous martyrdom that they faced because they followed Jesus Christ, because they took his message to the world. The only prophet the early apostles would have received would have been found in eternity. And you don't follow what you know to be a fraud for some mythical thing that you would find in eternity the apostles did what they did because jesus christ changed their lives the apostles did what they did at the cost that it cost them because the evidence overwhelmingly showed that christ was the messiah god had opened their eyes and they were able to see who jesus was and is what did the wise men sense or understand when they met jesus as a young child we don't know but we do know they were overjoyed when the star reappeared and led them to where Jesus was and they bowed down and worshiped them and they opened their gifts their treasures and they gladly gave to him surely their lives were not the same after that can you imagine the commotion that would have happened on that street if the house that Jesus was living in was in the middle of a subdivision If there were other streets around, I can just see all these curtains peering open and all these noses looking through. Who's that across the street? Who's at Mary's house? Wow, that's quite the camel train we got going. That would have caused quite a commotion. Bethlehem was really not a very important or impressive village at that time. Do you see what the wise men saw? Do you see Jesus Christ as the one-born King of the Jews, the Christ? If not, what's stopping you? What is it that you don't see? If you do see what the wise men saw, then what are you doing with Jesus? Have you bowed down to worship him the way the wise men did? Have you given Jesus Christ your greatest gift, your life in complete devotion the way the apostles did? Or have you put him on a shelf telling yourself, I'll get back to him later? See, the wise men saw a star. They saw fit to follow a star. They asked the questions to see where they could find the one-born king of the Jews. They saw the Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. They saw the need to worship. They saw to it, to present him with gifts fit for a king. And seeing in a vision, a warning, they obeyed. Do you see what I see? Do you see what the Magi saw? Or do you see Christmas primarily as a time for getting together with family for a big feast, to open presents, or perhaps just a paid day off. If all of that was taken away from you, and a lot of that has been taken away from us this year, but if all of that was taken away, all that the secular world portrays as all that Christmas is, and you found yourself standing alone in front of the manger as the shepherds did, if you found yourself standing alone at the threshold to the door as the way the Magi did, If that's how you found yourself and you heard God whispering to you, aren't I enough for you? Could you answer yes to that question? Could you honestly answer yes? If not, you come and see me. I'll help you find the answers to those questions. If I don't know them myself, I'll help you find the answers. But don't let the sun go down on this day without you being able to answer yes to God's question. Aren't I enough for you? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We look to see what you have to show us. You've shown so many wonders and signs and incredibly beautiful things to us. So many times we're too busy doing what we're doing that we don't see what you have to show us. Help us, Lord, this Christmas season, that we would open our eyes to you, open our hearts to you, that there would be nothing that stops us from coming to you in complete submission. Help us to cast aside those things that scare us from coming to you, those things that prevent us from coming to you because we're too proud, because we don't think we're good enough, because we don't think you're willing to forgive us. Lord, you came to this earth, and we can love because you first loved us. You've shown us the way to eternity. You've shown us the way to a salvation that this world cannot take away from us. Lord, as this Christmas season approaches, as the day approaches that we celebrate your birth, I pray that we would all be found within you, within ourselves, worshiping you, the one who is born King of the Jews. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at church. Until next time.